forever. Dog. Welcome to Public Intellectual. I am your host, Jessica Crispin. Public Intellectual is supported solely by its listeners, so if you would like to become a supporter, like our new supporters, Joey Richards, Michelle Lemoyne, and Jen May, hi Jen, you can go to patreon.com slash publicintellectual, and a sincere thank you to the supporters new and old. Your support this year has been greatly appreciated. That's patreon.com slash publicintellectual. It's the end of the year, which means there are a lot of lists. And as I look through the list of the best books of the year, besides noticing the absence of the new Dubrovka Ugrasich book, Fox, which is wonderful and you should read it, is the dominance of the word I. We are still in a glut of the first person narrative. So I talked with B.D. McClay a book critic and regular guest on Public Intellectual, to talk about these books and to talk about the first-person singular narrative. I enjoyed your piece on the new Elaine Pagel's book, why religion. Um, and it kind of expressed what I, the confusion I had when I heard about the book, because I assumed it was another work of, um, you know, her, her scholarly output turns out to be mostly a memoir. Um, but it's, I'm interested in both books. Like I'm interested both in Elaine Pagel's memoir and in a book that would follow the title, why religion, Mm -hmm. Um, it's just strange that it's, that it's framed, her life story is framed in that way of trying to explain, um, why religion is important or what it does. Um, right. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, in a sense, her, her answer is that like religion is important because, uh, horrible things happen to you and it's sort of too hard if there's not a a framework for them which is which isn't the worst answer I guess uh but you know if if your best friend dies in a car accident when you're in high school and then uh your child dies at the age of six and then less than a year later your husband falls to his death off a mountain Mm-hmm. Uh, all of which happens to her, uh, then it's nice to be able to go into your scholarly research and work out your feelings there or go into a church and have kind of a space for it. Uh, but I think part of the problem, <clears throat> part of the problem for me, I, well, or, or I have I had two issues with it as a book. Um, one is that uh, she has this very expansive definition of religion, um, but it it's expansive in the sense that it's kind of like things that 
that give you a certain type of internal uplift, you know, like uh, certain kinds of music, certain kinds of aesthetics, uh, special experiences that she has uh, when she thinks that she can sense a dead person's presence, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, what she more or less deliberately excludes from this is like the the content of, <laughs> of religious belief, which I I find weird on a number of levels. Um, and I I I find it so weird that I almost wonder if this is one of those things where it's like a kind of intellectual incompatibility. Like I'll just never understand this uh because you know, like why are you interested in the gnostics if like like you obviously care what the gnostics think so why are you so um <clears throat> uninterested in talking about about the content of religious belief i mean that, i think that's what that's that's my one of my bigger problems with um the way that she argues for it, because, like, you know, there, there are things that you can also do that make you feel better and uh, provide structure for your life uh, and aren't, that aren't religion, but can mm-hmm. still do those things. Like, why not those things? Is, is religion just your thing? And for other people, it's like crocheting. Yoga. Uh, yeah. Uh, the other thing I think, um, and I think I, I spent more time on this in the review, is that uh, she <clears throat> she opens her her book more or less with um, her going to see Billy Graham as a as a kid, mm-hmm. uh, and this is her first encounter with religion ever. And she's completely electrified by it, uh, goes up at the altar call, all of that stuff. And uh, this stays with her until her, her high school friend dies. Uh, and then she, she sort of leaves and then comes back and, and so on. Um, but uh, there's some sense in which, like, the book is called Why Religion? Because whenever she tells people what she studies, they're rude about it, more or less, mm-hmm. uh, including the the man that she ultimately marries. Uh, and I don't know that going through your life and being like, well, at, at this or that difficult time, you know, I went into a church and it was helpful. Like, well, who does that convince, really? Like, why does that say, and and that's why it's a good thing that I I learned Coptic and spent most of my youth studying these books. Like, you know, just uh, on some level, it just doesn't doesn't answer the question that I actually want the answer to. Right, yeah. Um, Even though, like, obviously her, her life story is often quite painful and um there's also a lot in the the memoir like she she gets a letter from 
Harvard. I think it's Harvard. Um, it, saying we would have accepted you into our graduate program, but you're a woman. Woman students always leave, so we're going to delay acceptance for you for a year to see if you if you're really serious about it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, like, like in some sense, I feel like she's had to fight hard enough to do what she wants that she should have a. You know, like, like, why didn't you just look at that letter and then be like, well, why do I want to spend the rest of my life working around these people? Which is probably how I would have responded to it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, why, why was this worth putting up with that and being sexually harassed by your advisor and like all of this stuff? Uh, and I, I'm sure she does have an answer to the question, but I, it, it I just didn't think it was in the book. Well, her sort of framing this conversation about why why is religion important around the solace that it provides is always an argument that I hear from atheists, which I hate, which is, oh, you know, it must be nice to be able to believe and, you know, and to have faith and, you know, it must make your life so much easier, um, right. which is the exact, I mean, that just shows you, you have no idea what, what religious belief is if you think oh it just make if i'm having a problem i'm like oh well i'm going to heaven so it's going to be fine in the end anyway um it's just such a simple overly simplistic version of what religion is for or does and then to have elaine pagels um use the same argument was a little um disappointing yeah though i i guess i just like I, I genuinely have no sense of, of what she actually believes, even though she considers herself religious. And I've read enough of her work to know that she would respond to that question uh, with a kind of religion isn't about belief. You know, it's it's about practices and and so on. But even there, like, I have no idea what what her what her practices, you know, it's just sort of, mm-hmm. uh, and I think, yeah, I mean, like religious belief can be a consolation when things are bad, but, uh, it often is just a thing that makes your life harder. Mm-hmm. Um, and actually one thing that really interested me at the, at the beginning, she's talking about the different churches she's sort of exposed to in her childhood. And uh, it's like, there's the, the Protestant church that her mother sometimes takes her to. Uh, and then there's the, the Catholic church, uh, which she finds incredibly creepy. Because <laughs> <laughs> it's all like dark and there are candles and her, her friend has to go in there to confess her sins and stuff. Uh, and uh I think there's like a an element of I mean actually an element of, of religious practice that I feel like she doesn't quite get, which is that like some kind of real sometimes off-putting or embarrassing embodiment is just sort of needed. Like I think one reason she likes 
Gnostic texts so much is that they they free her from the ability to have to take things literally in a way that would be embarrassing to her. Uh, And so it's like, well, I don't really need to believe in in transubstantiation or I don't really need to believe in in the, the body being resurrected. But I can believe in like a sort of inner light Mm-hmm. Uh, which sort of seems to be where she ends up. And I guess it makes sense to me that if, if that's what you that's what you reduce what you believe to, then uh, I don't know that it could provide a, a purpose other than being consolatory because uh, like what else is inner light supposed to do? <laughs> Right. I mean, as somebody who leans toward the Gnostic myself, I don't recognize um, my my interpretation or my version of that with her version at all, which was also the other frustrating thing is like by making it so much about her um, and, and centering the story just on her personal story without bringing in the scholarship or um well, you know, and anything else, essentially, right. um, it turns it into um, what something you either identify with or recognize about your your own self, your own story, or it's something that you don't, right? Like, and yeah. that's the sort of problem with a lot of these, um, uh, you know, first person singular versions of um well everything you know everything from the you know the personal essay as sort of feminist praxis or the um uh the the life story as a reason why we should i don't know like go to college or something or you know read read books or whatever um it, it essentially comes down to do i recognize myself in this person's story or do i not Right. Yeah. I mean, like, there's this kind of obsession with with storytelling as the way to build, I I guess, empathy, uh, where it's like, oh, if I tell this story about a thing that happened in my life, then it will matter because I matter or whatever, which works when you're talking to a friend sometimes. (laughs) uh and then not so much when you're like you know one of many me too essays or or writing a book about why people should read books because this book meant a lot to you you know uh which is a is a genre of book I have like a a weird relationship to because I can absolutely imagine myself writing something like that uh, <laughs> and that that I haven't feels sort of like a, a, a accident rather than something I can like congratulate myself on. But at the same time, it's like who buys the the book? Who even wants to read the book? That's like this is why I'm just looking around to pick a book at random. This is why Anita Bruckner changed my life. Like, right? I'll, I'll buy that book, but like you're, you're not. <laughs> You know, the the only people who are gonna read it are the people who already who are already on your side. Um, yeah, yeah. And I hate that. I hate that argument of like uh, reading creates empathy. Because uh, yeah, you hear it all the time in in you know these sort of um, soft headed um, 
literature sites. Um, and then you, you, you know, Hitler read a lot of books. Stalin right. read a lot of books. Like it doesn't actually, you know, build empathy uh, from its own. You don't, re- and I, and I don't know if anybody's like, well, I'm going to read War and Peace because it is going to build empathy within me. Like I did, I, I just find that argument so, um, so silly. Yeah, and then when people do read books with that kind of like mindset. Uh, it, it's like, well, I read this book by a woman or a black person, and now I know something about their experience. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and it's like, uh, and, uh, but, but like, they don't actually engage with the book because the book's job was to make them feel better about themselves and like, not to be a, a complicated Thing for them to work with and against and and so on I think the other thing about empathy and, and storytelling is that uh, everybody has a story uh, like like this is the sort of the thing about um, you know there's now this sort of small genre of, of like the the man of me too writing mm-hmm. the essays about their stories and, and how like suffering consequences has, has hurt their lives. Mm-hmm. Uh, and like, like they're obviously telling these stories to build sympathy and at least explicitly in one case, solidarity, uh, and to be like, you know, do I, do I not bleed or whatever? And, um, <laughs> and like, uh, and there's this kind of anger whenever one of these gets published that's sort of like, like, no, you guys don't get to tell stories. Like, like storytelling is, is for empathy building. It's for empathy building with the people who, who deserve the empathy. Mm-hmm. But it's like, it, it's actually just a, a tool. Uh, anyone can use it to get sympathy. And you end up in this situation where it's like, well, here's a story that's sad here's another story that's sad. Unfortunately, we have no way to evaluate anything about them. Uh, because like, this is, this is where we sort of set the standard. So you're going to pick which story already resonates with you more because you already identify with it more, i.e. which story you can see yourself in, Mm -hmm. uh, which, uh, I don't know what to call this exactly. The that if empathy is is feeling another person's situation, this is like the the inverse of that in some sense. Um, yeah, it's and it becomes misery porn, or it becomes like this kind of you know, especially when we're we're talking about um, Me Too, or when we're talking about you know definitely we we saw a lot of this in the in the lead up to the uh irish referendum about legalizing abortion mm-hmm. um the just constant um flood of stories of individual um pain and suffering and it is politically useful but it's like well you know first of all who's profiting from this um from asking women to make themselves incredibly vulnerable in a public space. Right. Um, 
but also can't we just have, can we not have an argument anymore that's, that's based on something other than here's my story, <laughs> right? Like, right. Can, can we talk about it in a, in a more abstract, logical way rather than sort of sentimentalizing it? Um, but, you know, I go back and forth on that all, all the time because a lot of times it takes, you know, whatever it, it takes a, you know, a photograph of a dead baby for anybody to give a shit about the refugee crisis. Um, and you can talk about how, you know, you could talk about the refugee crisis in, in abstract ways or in historical ways or anything like that for hours. Um, and people will feel free to ignore you on, on the subject. Um, but then you show them a dead baby and all of a sudden right. they care. But I think this is, uh, I think something like the refugee crisis is a, a really good example of how, uh, something like a story feels like a way to get to somebody more quickly, but the people who are very afraid are also using stories, right? Like they're, they're finding stories of, of rape or of other kinds of things and, and using those stories as representative, like, uh, even stories that don't involve refugees, but can sort of be plausibly spun as that to somebody that they're trying to kind of woo over. Mm -hmm. uh, but I go, I mean, I, I think part of the reason I'm interested in talking about this is because I don't, I don't think that storytelling is precisely bad. It just feels extremely insufficient. Mm -hmm. uh, but it feels like the the step that people keep on getting stuck on, like, you know, eventually Me Too will lose energy and a few years will go by and then there will be some other hashtag. And then, like, I will see all these women posting to social media about, like, private experiences because they're sort of like, oh, this time. Mm -hmm. Uh... But it's like, it, it, I think partly the, it may partly just be that there's a lack of strategic thinking around, around storytelling, um, that like, you can't have faith that, you know, a, a thousand people ex saying something about their lives will sort of create the response that you want if it's not actually attached to some kind of demand or like people who are doing i don't know the the more abstract more theoretical work uh but also that there there does need to be a way uh there does need to be a way to make these arguments on um, ethical principles that don't have to rely on showing somebody a picture of a dead child or like mm -hmm. having to disclose things about your life to somebody. Um, and similarly with, with arguments, I mean, um, I think you and I both know that like experience, 
what people have experienced is not irrelevant. It's just not the only thing, right? So, you know, I think um, the experience of having an argument with somebody for whom it's an entirely abstract thing is often incredibly frustrating because they're not really doing thinking. It's not, mm-hmm. it's not that it's experience that makes people better thinkers, but that often people cannot think their way to a certain point without life kicking them. Uh, and so like, I don't know. I just feel like there needs to be a way to make an argument for, you know, the, the moral reason to help refugees, the moral reason that rape is wrong. <laughs> <laughs> um, moral, you know, like like these, these, there should be a way to have these as, as moral arguments, um, and not just like, well, this could have happened to somebody that you know, or if you were actually staring at it, you would feel bad. Um, because also, I think that like, you know, people see a they see a distressed child at the border or whatever, and they're very upset about it for a day. And then they, they move on, you know, they get upset about something else or they, so there's like a, at this point, it's almost like the volume of images to be upset by is so high Mm -hmm. that what any single one can do seems I don't I, I don't know that there could be a picture that could be released that would like change everything for somebody uh, for more than a short period of time. Yeah, and and I don't know the the sort of shift to the um subjective experience. Um, you know, especially in within books. Um now we find sort of expertise suspect, I guess. Yeah. Um, and so now everything has to be, you know, made more casual, made more, much more personal. There has to be a sort of emotional reason for everything that happens. Um, but to me, that's just like, you know, uh, I was thinking about this reading, uh, Lena Dunham's apology, um, about why she lied in order to protect her friend against the accusation of rape was like, well, I've, you know, the patriarchy and I've suffered sexual assault and and trauma and, and all the sorts of things. Um, but it's just like, just, you just did a shitty thing. Like just apologize. But, but this sort of like, I don't know, this need for grounding within um, all of these sort of um, subjective experiences, like you're dragging your entire personal history into um, just explaining why you think a certain way or believe, uh, you know, uh, one religion over another or whatever. Um, I just don't know what we think we're getting out of that. Right. Although I think with the, the Luna Dunham thing, there's also an element of it that's like, like I did the kind of really bad thing that you would associated with would have associated with like an uneducated bad person, but I'm an educated good person. Right. I yeah, just yeah. you know did this thing for reasons that honestly reflect well on me. You know, if you think mm-hmm. about it or whatever. But 
but I'm really sorry. I shouldn't have done it. But but just to be clear, you know, I am a good person who who did it. I don't. There's like an obsession with <clears throat> making it clear that I don't even know. It's like it's like you might think I should have known better, and I did know better, <laughs> and that's why. I, I don't know. She is a <laughs> she's a very like I I actually thought I, I watched the first season of Girls and I thought that she was talented, but that I never wanted to like have to deal with her ever again. Right. Yeah. Which unfortunately isn't happening. But <laughs> because she just keeps on um appearing. But but yeah, there's this kind of like in this apology, uh, you have to establish that you're a person of some right. kind, uh, because like we can't take that for granted. That <laughs> 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 like, like you know, the the person who did this bad thing and who is apologizing is is a person, and so, but. Yeah, no, it's, and it's also, like, I don't know if this fits in with this or not, but I was thinking about this when you said that thing about expertise. It's like, we don't like expertise. We do care a lot, I think, about credentials. Mm -hmm. Uh, Authenticity, especially, like, your authentic credentials, right? Right, but also, I think, just, like, uh, like, like, Lena Dunham wants to make sure that people know that that she's learned certain things in like a some perfunctory way, like like she knows mm-hmm. certain words, um, yeah, and she can use them to describe uh, herself and and so on. Um, and this doesn't doesn't qualify as expertise, but I think it is supposed to indicate that she deserves to be taken seriously in some way. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, I don't know if her apology exactly fits into this genre, though. Now I feel like I just started talking about it because it is one of the weirdest things I've ever read. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, you know, using her history of um, sexual assault as a as a um, a mark of um authenticity or as her credentials right yeah so that to me is really strange but it doesn't seem like an anomaly right so once we get into this place of um this is my story then there's like this justification of why your story deserves to be heard right because everybody's telling their story um and so there's this thing of like well especially among women i get to tell my story because of everything I have suffered and here is everything that I have suffered and and the need to sort of drag that into every sort of conversation that you're having um every PC right every you know official apology you issue <laughs> um, uh to to in um justify taking up space in right. any way uh and there's also a way in which I I think um yeah, you know, I I enjoy a a good personal essay, uh, and and so on. Uh, but I think what, especially when this was that I think the the personal essay thing has sort of peaked, 
mm-hmm. but people are still writing these these first person things that I feel like exist to to flatten out your experience and kind of draw moral from it mm-hmm. um and so it's like uh like even with um with the apology since that's that's kind of the the central text right now uh <laughs> there's like a a weird she goes through this litany of of sexual harassment that she's suffered uh but in each case, she's like, I wasn't brave enough. Like this, the the message, the moral of of this story is that I should have been brave enough to say something then. Mm-hmm. Uh, I should have been the person to like start me too. Was kind of where it it oh. seemed to be going. Yeah. Uh, and uh, I, but also like you know sometimes sometimes what's interesting to read is is people reflecting on uh stuff that they've done that wasn't great uh like a while ago there was this this woman who had an essay where she basically like stalked somebody who wrote a bad goodreads review of her book oh right god yeah yeah and I, I love that essay. Like yeah. I've, I've read it multiple times, but it was it was so controversial because she was basically owning up to having done not just a not great thing, but like a kind of insane thing. Mm-hmm. And she didn't apologize. Like she wasn't doing apologetics for herself. Uh, she, there was never any point where she was like. But like, who among us hasn't done this or anything like that? But uh, but the lack of like drawing a moral out from from what she did, mm-hmm. yeah, also made it unacceptable. Like she needed to have some kind of takeaway lesson from stalking this woman. Oh yeah, no, uh, I just I read this um uh this piece today you know like a critical essay on a slew of um new memoirs about motherhood mm-hmm. um and the basic criticism was that none of the writers and she only wrote was writing about um white writers that the writers didn't deal directly with their whiteness in a um enough mm-hmm. um which I completely understand. And I understand like um, being critical of somebody's um, uh, lack of awareness of their sense of entitlement and the privileges that they've enjoyed in their lives and everything. But now, right, we're in this weird place where um, you people are encouraged and told to tell their personal stories, but then it's like... Um, I don't know. I don't know what I'm trying to say. Right. But I think, um, I think I, I, I know what you're trying to say. Uh, our, I think that like the issue, part of the issue when, when storytelling becomes so instrumental, when it's like, you tell your story, you tell it in like a specific way. Uh, and, and you do this to like, further some goal which isn't entirely clear but uh consciousness raising whatever Mm -hmm. 
then um, telling a story, really just to tell the story, right? Because like it's a good story, because you're interested in it, because you can tell it well, mm-hmm. um, is suddenly like it's not okay because it's not furthering a cause of some kind, right? It's just like a really solid memoir or um, a really good essay. Yeah. Um, Yeah. And people want, they want to, they want to, they want the memoir to be doing something for them. Uh, They want to both like relate to it, but also feel like, something about reading it should make them feel good about themselves in a, in a certain kind of way. Like, uh, you know, I've had my consciousness broadened. I watched somebody engage in, in like self-criticism or, or whatever. Uh, but it's never stuff that would really push you, you know, like, like in the, a motherhood memoir, uh, you know, uh, if if one of these mothers had instead written a book that was very much about motherhood and race, uh, I feel like that would probably have been read and appreciated by, like, a small number of people. Um, but it wouldn't do the thing that people sort of want from these these books, which is to to feel better right like like even if even if this book is supposedly challenging your consciousness about something or another it's doing it in a way that's flattering to you um and it's catching it in a story which is ultimately not that threatening uh so it's like i don't know i i feel like i i keep on saying the same thing in in different kinds of ways mm-hmm. but i I I do think that the the personal story can be I mean to me it tends to be inherently interesting because I'm kind of a voyeur uh which is why I like social media so much uh but like uh you know I I've done some personal writing I think you have too mm-hmm. uh it can be very effective but there's something, there's almost something on the audience side about wanting to be coddled that this, this feels like it feeds. Um, because, like, people are sacrificing a, a reasonable expectation to privacy. They have to, you know, especially if it's a story about, about, um, victimhood of of some kind like they sort of have to perform being an appropriate victim right like you have to be traumatized in a certain way uh although you might be like this was really bad for me but also I was lucky or or whatever uh but at the same time like it is just an anecdote is just one person's experience so you can you can actually leave it if you if you want to 
or you can feel sad about it and then be like, but this person's clearly doing okay. And I'm just engaging with this one story. Um, whereas something that was really actually an individual person's story would be one thing and tends to be harder to, to walk away from. I mean, if somebody's really digging into their experience, uh, because actual experience is not a flat thing. It has like different aspects. Um, and an actual argument is also harder to walk away from. But the kind of argument story, uh, I don't know. It just feels like it, it's, it's short-term effective and long-term not. Mm -hmm. uh, and even the ways in which it's short-term effective are kind of like, like pinching somebody and then they'll say, ow, and you got a response from them. Uh, but, but I don't know. I feel like I lost my thread a bit there. <laughs> um, well, uh, I, I think it's confusing what we expect these stories to do. Um, and I think that there is a conflict between um, wanting to identify or have our experience reflected back to us. And then if our experience is not reflected back to us in that story, mm -hmm. because we are of a different race or um, a different class or nationality or religion or whatever, then we criticize it on that level. Right. So right. the criticism of, um, you know, it, or praise tends to fall on those lines and, you know, sort of this whole year has been like the year the reemergence of the sort of illness memoir mm -hmm. um and people writing about it you know i'm i'm also chronically ill and this is my story and it's so important for everybody to read it's like well is it like what is it what does it say to somebody who isn't chronically ill other than just sort of representing their their story um mm -hmm. and i and i don't think that representation is an, is enough um in order to sort of um to make the argument that this is this book is important or or not important and also the the sort of need for a story to hold political weight i, I also think is kind of um misguided um for for it to you know change the world um, or legitimize a, a, a demographic or whatever, um, I think that's I think that's the wrong thing to ask literature to do. Right. I think. Um, oh, I had an example in my head while you were talking, and then I. Oh, I was thinking about this actually, sort of in advance of this podcast but over over the thanksgiving holiday i watched a movie that has come up on this podcast quite a bit l uh yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh and then i went and read the reviews after after i watched it and um they were most i whenever i watch movies i discover how much i dislike movie writing like oh yeah man yeah <laughs> it's really but the one that really stuck with me was this person complaining that the the main character's Michelle's backstory was so specific mm -hmm. that they were like, uh, you know, she has such a specific backstory and such a singular reaction that it's impossible 
for her to kind of like stand in for women. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And you can't like, relate to her. Yeah. Yeah. And it was like, well, okay. Like, like Elle is a, not a first person story, which is already like, which makes it different, but it was something like, you know, people, people do have complicated reactions to things uh, and to be angry that uh, this reaction isn't yours or isn't normal mm-hmm. uh, or isn't what you want to be considered normal. Like, you know, the, the New York times had that op-ed about gender transition yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and a lot of people got angry about it because the author was like, I should be able to do this even if it won't make me happy. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was basically like a, you know, an argument against the kind of medical gatekeeping, but people got really mad mm-hmm. uh, because they wanted her to say like, they wanted her to give some kind of ground to the argument that it would make her happy and that was the most important thing. Uh, and in, and I thought it was somebody being very honest about like what what this process meant to her. Mm-hmm. Like I think I would have had different follow-up questions. Um, mostly I, I was curious why she wanted to do it because that was the thing that I felt was sort of not as clear Mm-hmm. Uh, but, uh, but the anger around that piece I thought was misguided. Like, like I understand why somebody might see something like that in the New York times and think, oh no, but in the end it, it did the thing that I think writing from personal experience should do, which is really be honest about about the subjective aspect of this and not try to make it relatable. Um, (coughs) And then draw like a bigger point, like a bigger philosophical argument about like the metrics by which other people should get to judge what you choose or prevent you from choosing it. But like, yeah, like the way that people are going to experience something is going to be weird, actually. Like, the experience will be weird and trying to force it into a box so that you can make an argument that will uh, feel more mainstream appropriate seems very misguided to me. Not that I'm a professional activist or anything, and maybe they know better than I do. Uh, but that, but yeah. Point, I mean, well, that's the weird thing about the, the first person singular. Like, even if you're writing, I, 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 people are taking it as, um, as representation. They're taking it as because you are, um, a trans woman or you are a woman or you are from a Texan or whatever, then you are a a stand in for that entire demographic. So no matter how many times you try to say, um, you know, this is a personal thing, or this is, you know, the result of a singular psychology or whatever the fuck, um, people will sort of take it as, well, I am also that thing. And that doesn't represent my experience, you know, in in the same way of the reaction to Elle, it's like, well, I was raped and I didn't respond like that. And so why is my story not being represented in this woman's story? Right. Yeah. And like, 
One thing I saw often in in the response to the op-ed was something like, well, it's fine for this woman to write about herself, but she should make it clear that she's writing about herself and not all trans people. Like that was that was very clear. Yeah, I thought it, <laughs> like, was, it was a personal essay. Like, yeah, <laughs> what else uh, did she have to do? <laughs> and so, like, it's like, well, yeah, like, like she did make that clear. Like, maybe you you can't make things so clear that people who can't read understand it. But like, that seems not a like a reasonable bar. Uh, but, um. But yeah, I just, I mean, I think maybe partly because I am somebody who both like really enjoys hearing about people's personal stories, but also enjoys argument, like the, the way that the pure forms of both are kind of disappearing, Mm -hmm. uh, for one thing makes things more boring for me, uh, like not to sound like a sociopath, but, (laughs) um, but like. And I mean, I, I do think, you know, to be uh, kind, kind of pagels for a second, uh, you know, like if somebody, if somebody asked me why I believe the things that I believe, like a lot of it would come down to personal experience. Uh, and like, I think that's true for a lot of people. Mm-hmm. Um, but that also means that I don't try to make arguments around that particular why, because I know I don't have one. Uh, like I would not write a book about it because, because it's not, it's not an argument, right? Like I could write a book about myself, but it wouldn't be like, why God? That wouldn't be. Um, and I think, I mean, I don't know what a straight up memoir from Pagels would look like that wouldn't be this book. Mm-hmm. Though I assume that it would have less kind of like, uh, and while I was doing this, I was writing this book. <laughs> and while I was doing this, I was writing this book. Mm-hmm. Like this kind of way where she, it's like behind the scenes of writing my book about Satan, like I was doing this or that thing or struggling with this or that personal problem, which is how it, it comes across in the book. But even a memoir that just focused on her life from high school through um, her graduate study, I think, would have been more interesting to read. Um, Sort of like, why did you pick this when so many things made it unlikely you would? Because that, it's very clear reading the book that actually exists that it was unlikely but not really why she did it. It's just like she did it. And I, I mean, if somebody asked me why I do most of the things that I do, I don't know that I would have a good answer. <laughs> <laughs> um, like, I think it's actually a pretty horrible, it's a horrible question to ask yourself because answering the question takes a long time and it's often extremely, uh, extremely taxing. Um, but and like, also, I think people, you know, tell these versions of their stories in order to sort of solidify an answer to themselves, yeah. right? Like not, not to actually explore, but to explain to themselves, you know, why I, 
why I had that affair, why I behaved this way, like whatever. It's, it's, it's not a sort of searching. It's a, uh, it's a way of making it safe. Yeah. Um, and like, yeah. So I think in one sense, like the, the reason that the book was disappointing was that the, you know, I've actually never read a good book about why somebody became an academic, (laughs) you know, like, like I've, I've read so much about why people become academics and you know my my family's mostly academics and so like uh and like i i experienced not getting into graduate school like getting kicked out of the garden of eden i mean that was <laughs> that was how it it felt but if i actually asked myself like what made this worth pursuing like i think i i eventually came to some kind of answer there but i i do think like academic work is so like right now it's so high risk low reward and so many people still go on pursuing it uh there has to be a more compelling reason than like you know i read jane austen once and it saved my life or or whatever even though that might be true Mm-hmm. But like you could do that and still become an accountant, and and also eight people have have written that book in the yes. last year. Yeah, yeah. There, I think there are literally two books with a title like "How Jane Austen Saved My Life." Yeah, uh, and uh, but like you can have actually a, a rich intellectual life and not be an academic. <laughs> and you can have no intellectual life and be an academic uh, yeah fucking yeah yeah so like uh so there has to be something about like the actual work of scholarship that is attractive it can't just be about um a sort of like single formative encounter with the book because you could take that and and spin it off in a different direction Mm -hmm. unless that never occurred to you which I mean, could honestly be the case for some of these people. And so like really asking themselves, why did I go here? Might the, the answer to that question might actually be kind of devastating because it might be actually, you could have had intellectually speaking as good, or maybe even a better life. Mm -hmm. uh, While you like worked in a bar or became an accountant or, uh, an accountant is always my go-to for this because it was what my dad told me to become. <laughs> so, um, you know, it's sort of like always like solidified in my head somehow is like the other road. Um, <laughs> uh, but like, you know, you maybe you could have pursued those things and actually had just as rich a life. Uh, but you didn't, it didn't occur to you that you could be interested in these things on their own. So you went to graduate school. Like that would be a really horrible answer to come up with. Uh, but it might be the truth. Mm-hmm. And I guess it would be hard to write a book out of that. But I would be significantly more interested in reading it. 
Oh yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, I'm wondering if we can pivot to the Columbia Journalism Review piece that came yes. out. Um, because I do feel like it, it's tied into the conversation that we've been having about the the sort of lack of intellectual rigor or whatever the fuck. Um, but um, this piece talking about how places like the Atlantic and Vulture and um, BuzzFeed are expanding book coverage. And isn't that exciting? Except for they're expanding like book content. <laughs> yes. <laughs> not book, not book coverage. Um, right. Yeah. Um, and, uh, yeah, it's hard to pick the worst, <laughs> the worst line from this piece. Uh, there's, um, one, there's one about like, do you want to put a lot of effort into something only to discover it's not shareable? That was, yeah, 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 uh, are you going to put your time into something that's not going to share well? That was, uh, and like, oh God, electric literature is in here. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> yeah. I uh, mean, my, okay. If I can, if I can start with a complaint, like my, yeah. my, my first initial, and I tried to construct this into a tweet and I failed. And so I just like screamed into a pillow instead. Um, like I could, I couldn't get the word count. Um, but, um, you know, I don't think that it's this whole thing about good book coverage, right? Like we, we want to share, we want to recommend, we don't want to criticize you know, obviously that's been around in the book culture for forever, you know, back from, I mean, you know, by forever, I mean the time in which I have been involved in book culture because right. that's, 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 I'm, that's how narcissistic I am. But <laughs> like starting with that fucking believer essay um, against snark and then uh, colliding into sort of, you know, Buzzfeed only positive coverage. And, and now back to, we're back to this. Um, this idea of we're only going to support each other and be um, uh, positive about about the things that we're writing that we're reading um, is just another form of gatekeeping. Yeah, um, and I feel like it's not a coincidence that as publishing has become more and more accessible to um, a wider variety of writers. Um, that these new forms of gatekeeping are established. So now, you know, you have to know people and the best way to know people is through MFAs um, and to build your career that way. And so now um, that's just, a, you know, when people say we're only going to talk positively about books, it's like, well, then you have to know going into the book that you're reviewing that you're going to like it. And how do you know that? Because it's like, being recommended to you by somebody who knows that person and literary culture is so small and so insular um, within that realm of who's acceptable and who's known, who's a known yeah. quantity. Um, <laughs> and it just makes me so, it makes me so blindly angry. Right. It's like, 
Yeah, it, it takes something that's sort of a visible form of gatekeeping where, like, maybe you write a novel and it gets a nasty sexist review from Norman Mailer or whoever. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and, like, like that's horrible, but at least, you know, like, like, uh, you were acknowledged even if in, like, a really backhanded way as somebody who, you know, should be acknowledged. Although, actually, I'm sure that Norman Mailer never reviewed a book by somebody who wasn't either a friend are like a personal enemy so he was a good <laughs> example yeah <laughs> um, but like uh but now it's kind of like you know you might never be noticed and there might be this kind of wall of niceness separating you from from any kind of like coverage and you won't really know why yeah uh, and it will be harder to kind of deal with mm-hmm. than something like a nasty and obviously bigoted review. Um, I mean, because yeah, now it's just silence, yeah. right? Yeah. And there are a million excuses of, oh, there's so many books published in a year, blah, blah, blah. And it just so happens that, you know, every novel on the New York Times notable books of the year list happens to be a writer with an MFA, right? Like it, it, it just, it's just coincidence. It's not systemic. It's not, um, a, a form of gatekeeping. It's just, well, you know, that's just who is the best. And we used to say that about white people. We used to say that about men, but it's just a different form of that, but it's, it's harder to put your finger on why that is and how that happens yeah uh and uh oh there was an essay i read a long time ago no i can't remember its name but it was about etiquette um and the author the author was from an immigrant family and so like the first time in america that he was ever invited to another child's birthday party he got a copy of Emily Post and like read through all of it to learn how to behave and then like showed up to this party, you know, just like incredibly overdressed, incredibly overformal. Um, everybody made fun of him. Um, and he said that what like the the piece is basically about like how uh how what was most frustrating was that there were all these things he was supposed to know, mm-hmm. but they weren't anywhere. They were just like things he would have known if he had, had naturally grown up in this atmosphere, but he, he didn't. And so mm-hmm. there wasn't a way for him to, to get into it. Uh, and then he, the piece is actually ultimately pretty down on, on etiquette. But he does contrast this with his experience with um, people who had more of a a sort of feeling that etiquette was about making people comfortable. And so, like, you know, for them, it was about accommodating him and, like, helping him out and making sure that situations that he was involved in went smoothly and not about... 
trying to find the thing that he was doing that was slightly off that would just show that he didn't belong there. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I feel like, to some degree, this this seems related to me because um, I I think for people, the kind of, for for people who, you know, who, who go through a certain kind of route, you know, they go to the right school, they go to the right MFA, they, like, get bylines in the right publications. Um, they don't, they don't realize that, like, there's a reason that everyone around them is somebody who, who has also done that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and if somebody shows up, who is like abrasive in some way and followed a different route, they won't be able to put their fingers on why they, they don't like that person, mm-hmm. but they will feel like, Oh, that person doesn't belong right here. Uh, whereas like, I feel like the, the idea behind like an enthusiastic book culture or whatever is the idea that you have something that's kind of open and generous and open to like different kinds of books and so on. But instead you end up, which would be the, like the second example. Uh, but instead you end up with something where the books get more and more the same because mm-hmm. it's harder and harder to, to get into them. Uh, but I want to, I, I also want to complain about the thing in this that really drove me crazy well, which is just that, you know, like, I write book reviews, I enjoy reading book reviews, but for me, the the kind of book review that I most hate is the kind that is basically an unrelated opinion piece that's, like, hung. <laughs> like I, sure, yeah. I hate these so much, and um, I hate them especially when, when it's a novel, but, like, even a, a nonfiction book, if, it, if it's a good if it's a good book that's an interesting argument and so on, like I don't, I, w- I want to read somebody engaging with it and not just like using it. Um, and at, at the end of this piece, one of the editors, I think it's the guy at Vulture. Mm-hmm. Boris Kachka, right? Yeah. Yeah. Is like, you know, <clears throat> maybe no one will read the books, but we're going to like write about the ideas in the books and that will get the ideas larger audience. And then like the ideas will filter into the conversation. Mm-hmm. And it's just like a book is not a book is not a Ted talk. Like it is not, <laughs> it's not an idea. Like, like it's a, it's a object. It, it contains like, tensions and things that are going to be in conflict even if it's just like nonfiction, if it's a novel like talking about it as having an idea is just like actually just makes me angry uh although like a lot of people write books like that now and yeah, they, they do especially nonfiction, like especially i mean it's a you know Steven Pinker with his fucking graphs and bullet points, you know, it's, it's, um, here's my idea that the world is somehow getting better despite all evidence to the contrary. Right. And then like, Um, like people who want to like, like people write books like that, which are then rewarded by this kind of reviewing because Mm -hmm. it's like, here's my big billboard idea. And it's like, Oh, I can like give that some kind of simplistic response. 
you know, Steven Pinker is right or Steven Pinker is canceled. And then like, that was the other thing I thought was kind of funny is that like, in in the the piece, somebody's like, you know, we're moving away from the thumbs up, thumbs down review. But I feel like in some ways there hasn't ever been more. Yeah. <laughs> it's kind of like thumbs up or thumbs down. Um, that like picking a book and being like there are aspects of it that are good and also aspects of it that I have issues with like I I just don't I actually feel like I see very little of that um it's either cheerleading or these kind of huge takedown pieces even if the book really doesn't lately like, like even if the book is so unimportant that the huge takedown just feels like why mm-hmm. yeah <laughs> why are you uh um and like anyway so it's just like yeah people people write these simplistic idea books and then like they they and this kind of book writing live in this horrible parasitic relationship with each other and people also obviously write novels that are kind of like think peaceable and i hate them yeah and like everything about this upsets me so much like these people can go can go do anything you know they could go invent a whole different form of talking <laughs> um, and and they could do that and they could leave books alone uh, and that would be fine with me. Like, like it, I would be happy with a world of smaller book coverage where the people were actually like interested in what they were writing about. Um, and I also, I think this is the other thing I don't, maybe something I just don't get about like professional book stuff at, at large, like, which I mostly interact with through Twitter because. Mm-hmm. I really only leave my my home to walk my dog. So, like Twitter is Twitter is, is where I like sort of see the degree to which people interact with each other like normal people. <laughs> and uh there's always this kind of strange thing with with people who are writers who are like paid to give their opinions about books and they'll tweet these things where it's all like you know, whispers like such and such a book that I'm not going to name or whatever, like clearly wasn't good or you weren't allowed to say that this wasn't good, but it wasn't. Yeah. yeah. And it's like, who, who wasn't allowing you to do that exactly? Like, like did, did the author come to your house with a gun and threaten to shoot the cat? <laughs> If you tweeted about how much you didn't like, uh, I'm just picking a name at random here. Emma Klein's the girls, like, yeah. like that. Are but like I don't. What I really actually don't understand is why all of these people get into this business, which actually pays very little money, and which is mostly about your opinions, and then don't want to share the opinions. Like, yeah, I mean, it's like when. Um... Um. Uh, the the Chris Krause 
backlash started. Mm-hmm. And before that, she was untouchable, right? Yeah. Um, if you if you criticized her at all, um, you, people would sort of shout you down. Um, but that doesn't mean you can't criticize her. Um, you're just going to get yelled at a bit. You know, Bookslut ran a a piece about her issue with class, her is, issues with class in her writing, mm-hmm. uh, you know, years and years and years ago. Um, and we got a little heat in the, the writer, Jane, who had, had told me, you know, that she had been commissioned to write this piece, um, for some other, um, thing. And then when they realized that she was going to take a critical approach to her, they're like, yeah, we're not going to do this. And, and, and she, then she couldn't get published get it published in any of the sort of mainstream, um, sort of online book places, um, because they just, they just weren't interested in a, in a, in being critical about Chris Krause. But then like once it happened, like once, um, opinions started to turn on her, like then everyone was like, oh yeah, she's always been garbage or, you know, it's always been, I've, you know, I've hated her since blah, blah, blah. Um, which is, yeah, it's interesting to me. Um, you know, book culture, which is supposed to be about um, th- thinking and processing words and stuff like that, is is as sort of uh, beholden to celebrity and groupthink and, you know, um, taste uh, as, um, as everything else. Yeah. And like, you know, I... Um... I don't think that people have to pick every fight or or whatever, but you know, I mean, with um, I guess it's it's like about the the year anniversary of Cat Person, I think. Um, <laughs> <laughs> a story, <laughs> a story which I was quite vocal about disliking at at the time, and then I remember I kept on having conversations after where people would say stuff like you aren't allowed to dislike cat person is like, yeah, you are. You just say, <laughs> you just say you don't like it. And then it, like, if somebody wants to argue with you, you, you argue with them. Like, like that's, that, that actually is why I'm here because I like arguing with people. <laughs> uh, and if I, if I didn't like arguing with people, I would presumably get out of the business of opinion and argument making. Like I just, so this this book coverage thing where it's like, oh, maybe we'll have profiles of authors or like things kind of being like, you know, such and such a book in the age of Trump, whatever. Like all of this is a way of avoiding, again, actually making arguments and having opinions. Uh, it's just like I, I don't understand why why with these things why not go do something else and and like leave this to the people who actually like like the substance <laughs> of what they're dealing with like uh you know if if somebody wanted to run a book review that was positive book reviews only but they were all like all really amazing like pieces of of criticism I almost wouldn't mind, like, because negative reviews can be as cheap as positive reviews. I mean, I think the Chris oh, Cross sure. movie sort of illustrates that, like, uh, but, like, I just don't, I mean, 
I don't even know if a profile of a novelist. Well, okay, no, I'll take that back. I was going to say I've never read an interesting profile of a novelist. That's not true. <laughs> but there are fewer of them than like than the apparent increasing popularity of the genre like would make you think. Yeah. Um, but I just yeah. I don't know. Stupid times. I feel like I say this too often, but it's just true. We live in stupid times. Yeah. It it is interesting that and I and I I don't know, it seems to be a thing that happens sort of all across the board. Like as something loses its actual power, it mm-hmm. gains like imaginative power. So as writers um become diminished in their social role and um, are read in fewer and fewer numbers and uh, get paid less and less sort of respect and everything like that. Like the imaginative power of what it means to be a writer sort of weirdly grows. Yeah. And so they're pursuing this fantasy that has absolutely nothing to do with the lived experience of a a writer or what it takes to be a writer or um, how people have done that in the past. It, it just is this overwhelming fantasy that they have to find a way to manage. Um, And I don't really understand that Uh, as an actual writer who believes that nobody should write, including myself, (laughs) because it's a stupid, painful thing to do. Um, uh, do, do try, try something else. Like, you know, be Instagram, uh, influencer or, uh, because that's what it seems like all the, most of the sort of book culture people want to be anyway, is just like a, an Instagram tastemaker. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And like, I also wonder uh, just this, the the big association that the kind of like as as this thing mostly ceases to exist, it like begins to take hold on people's imaginations a certain way is the kind of obsession with um, cultural snobbery, mm-hmm. which I think does inform. I mean, in the in the Columbia Journalism Review piece, like. Uh, kind of like oh the old-fashioned book review is going to have to come down to earth you know and like uh modernize uh and like integrate with the rest of the culture section and so on but like and i i guess i feel like that that feels like people the way that people obsess over the idea of this like snobby high brown person who is judging them Mm -hmm. who almost definitely doesn't exist or if it does exist, it's like me. Uh, but like, you know, there's not actually this like big clique of people who read Henry James and go to the opera all the time who like are are denying you respect. Yeah, I think that's just me now. I think it's yeah. just me. <laughs> um, like, you know, and uh and the peop the the cultural references that people are dropping and in their writing aren't to those things, but to like Game of Thrones, you know, like mm-hmm. like the nerds won. <laughs> they, <laughs> they won. Like the 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 highbrow snobs are are put to the sword and like um and so like 
this kind of like, oh, like books are going to have to to deal with the fact that they are going to be written about in the same way as movies and TV or or whatever. Like, I would frankly love it if anyone wrote about or if there were like major places writing about books with the amount of attention people pay TV. But um, <laughs> because like TV recaps, at least deal with episodes in detail and like Mm. so on but uh but you know like like the issue isn't the issue isn't that i i think it's like degrading it's just that i think it's like stupid and a waste of everybody's time i guess that is degrading but like not not degrading in like a slumming it kind of way uh you know um i just I'm just cranky. I just like <laughs> I just I uh maybe I should become an accountant. Maybe my dad was right. Uh, <laughs> probably not too late. Yeah. Uh um yeah, that's the, probably a good place to stop. Yeah. <laughs> Forever Dog. This has been a Forever Dog production. Executive produced by Brett Boehm, Joe Cilio, and Alex Ramsey. For more original podcasts, please visit foreverdogpodcasts.com and subscribe to our shows on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Keep up with the latest Forever Dog news by following us on Twitter and Instagram, at Forever Dog Team, and liking our page on Facebook.